0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the New Books and East European Studies Podcast series. I'm your host, Amanda Jean Swain at the University of California Irvine. Today we'll be talking with Scott Miranda about his recent book, The People's Own Landscape: Nature, Tourism and Dictatorship in East Germany, Germany, published by the University of Michigan Press. And I learned a lot from reading this book about both environmental history of East Germany, but also approaches to studying the relationship between state and society and the role that landscape planning and uh, the natural environment and people's engagement with that natural environment uh, can reveal a lot of the political and social relationships uh, in a country, and particularly in East Germany, which was a country seeking to define itself during the period that Scott covers in this book. So welcome to New Books in East European Studies, Scott. Hi, Amanda. Thanks uh, for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So to start off, please tell us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in uh, being a historian and in particular about studying Germany and East Germany.
1: Yeah, so I, uh, my connection to the history of East Germany uh, comes from a couple of different places. One is personal biography, um, as these things often are, and um I was born in West Berlin. I'm not German, but my uh, mother was a uh, language specialist for army intelligence. And so she was at Teufelsberg in West Berlin, uh, listening station manned by U S army and by the NSA. And she was listening to Russian and East German phone calls and translating texts and things like that. So I, I always had this personal uh, curiosity uh, about the cold war and East and Germany because of that history. I got my, a Ph.D. at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, uh, working with uh, Rudy Koshar. And Rudy uh, is, was a scholar, is a scholar who at the time was very much interested in tourism, consumer society, um, inter- uh, heritage uh, management and things like that. And so as I was working with him, I was immersed in uh, issues of consumer desires and tourism. And that's really kind of where I started thinking about this project as a dissertation um, and then over, I also had an interest in environmental history um, and took a seminar with Bill Cronin at the University of Wisconsin and and hoped to somehow uh, merge the two. And as the dissertation evolved, it, what began is purely a history of tourism, and East Germany became more and more secret, looking at the intersections of uh, tourism and environment. So I began to think of it more as an environmental history as much as, as a tourism history. Mm-hmm. Um, So the interest in tourism was there in part informed by my uh, doctoral advisor um, and my interest in history just kind of emerged partly because of my own
0: biography. And uh, obviously those uh, of you who are listening to the podcast can't see this, but I'm talking to Scott over the zoom uh, conferencing software. And so I can see he's got maps up on the wall behind his head and, uh, and we'll, we will be talking a lot about um, these concepts of, of, of mapping and, and determining um, how not just what territories there, but how to define that territory and how to relate to that territory within East Germany. But You argue for historical continuity situating East German approaches to natural resources in the context of 19th century German anxieties about scarcity and abundance. So before we talk about East Germany, which um, was formed after World War II, explain for us these continuities that you see and give us the grounding that we need in in 19th century German um, thinking about landscape and landscape planning.
1: Yeah, so when it comes to landscape planning, tourism, and uh, environmental protection, there are, there are these three topics have long histories uh, in Germany. Um, with environmental protection, the homeland protection associations uh, beginning in the 1890s, 1880s and 1890s, um, are mostly middle class groups seeking to protect uh, rural, agricultural, and pastoral landscapes from uh, urban sprawl commercialization. Um, and from, and partly related to that, uh, there was a long tradition, uh, kind of a, a statist uh, tradition in Germany of planning the landscape to maximize, uh, economic efficiency, productivity, but also to protect and cultivate, uh, health, public health and individuals. And then the history of tourism, which would have largely been a more middle-class phenomenon, um, um, but increasingly something that the working classes were involved in, especially in the 1920s and the 1930s um, in Germany. Um, so well, Germany became associated very strongly as a country of tourists, a country of nature lovers, forest lovers, a uh, country of hikers and uh, outdoors uh, enthusiasts. Um, and what was interesting to me was, thinking, well, you know, here comes this new regime that for many Germans was... A complete imposition, completely uh, had nothing to do with these continuities of of German national identity and culture. Um, So what happens to these continuities is uh, you could, particularly if you're taking a more totalitarian view of uh, East German regime, you could see it as a complete imposition, no continuity, just destroys what was there before. Um, uh, And I wanted to find out how true that was. And environmental history of East Germany hadn't really, I felt, engaged in those continuities that crossed 1945. Um, They had been, you know, there had been interest in how the communist regime had harmed the environment. Um, And then there was the emergence in the 1970s and 80s of within the church of a very, very kind of modern uh, ecological movement that has much in common with. movements in Western Europe in the 1970s. So um, when people were thinking about the environment, was it all new, emerging out of 1968, 1970s, or are they drawing on something longer um, uh, as tourists, as conservationists, as planners? Mm -hmm.
0: And what were a couple of the key ideas that they were looking back to that were very specifically coming out of the 19th century?
1: There was particularly ideas about uh, the opposition between consumerism and public well-being. There's German anxieties that uh, modern commercialism, particularly as shaped by Anglo-American capitalism, by American popular culture, um, was undermining German national culture, but also uh, was a threat to psychological and physical well-being. (laughs) <laughs> um, so that idea had been there for a long time um, I think another longer tradition is the idea that uh, capitalism can be and needs to be managed that um, the scarcities of uh, World War one the scarcities of uh, any um, not the scarcities but the turbulence of capitalism in the 1920s um, and to a certain degree, some of the scarcities nineteen uh, during the war, World War II, um, any new regime had to, as part of its promise, um, had to promise a better life that would get rid of those inefficiencies of scarcities and those, that turbulence. Uh, and uh, to a certain degree, landscape planners have been trying to do that going back to the 19th century um, to manage consumerism, manage growth in such a way um, that it wasn't threatening. Uh, and so that discussion, those ideas about the state management of, of capitalism, of commercialism, of consumerism uh, have been part of a German conversation for a long time. And German socialists have their own understandings of the state and the economy, but they're also building on these, these larger German discussions. Mm-hmm.
0: So to move on to socialist uh, conceptions of that, uh, give us a really brief summary of how the East German state even came into being and what kind of system they were the new leaders of this new country were trying to implement.
1: Yeah, um, there had been a strong social democratic and communist movement in Germany since the 19th century, uh, and some of the founders of the East German state emerged from that. Some had been persecuted by the Nazis as communists or as social democrats. Now, the founding of East Germany, though, would not have happened without, of course, the Red Army. Um, Many of the eventual German leaders of East Germany had spent uh, the war in Russia, in Moscow, um, and kind of were flown in uh, once the Red Army was there to set up this new state. And it was a state very much aligned with um, what, at the time, um, Stalinist... uh, Ideas about democratic centralism and uh, the relationship between uh, the government and the people. Um, so, it was you know, there wasn't any real democracy there. It was kind of central planning from the SED, the Socialist Unity Party, which was the ruling party in East Germany. Um, And they had a vision of the economy and the political system was very, in many ways, very similar to the Soviet Union. Maybe I should say more. I don't know. Mm
0: -hmm. No, that's good. Sometimes we have people who aren't necessarily um, uh, East Europeanist listening to podcasts. So we always like to at least cover some of the basics. Mm -hmm. But so we have this new state being formed um, uh, in large part because of the presence of the the Soviet army after World War Two in on the German territory. And they faced a lot of challenges, not least of which was convincing people that who now lived in this um, German Democratic Republic or DDR that they should be loyal to this new state. Um, how did the leadership attempt to use athletic tourism in the late 1940s to define this new territory, this new um, Germany, and to mobilize the population towards its ideological goals? Yeah.
1: Yes, there was a state with very little legitimacy uh, when it emerged, except for a small, committed core uh, of working-class communists. And the regime was very wary and mistrustful of many aspects of German national culture, particularly middle-class culture. And hiking and uh, nature preservation, they argued, was linked to, romanticism was linked linked to kind of um, an avoidance of hard economic uh, social class issues but it was an escape. And in fact, that romanticism was in part mobilized outdoor activities to undermine a uh, working class movement. So they, the idea that East Germans after the war would be out there camping, hiking, uh, rock climbing on their own and in doing so would be kind of engaging in a culture and idea that predated the East Germans and, and communism. Um, and maybe thus, um, having conversations and discussions um, uh, that might be threatening um, to uh, this new regime. Um, So initially the relationship with outdoor tourism, nature tourism was very antagonistic. Uh, uh, There was a a German uh, association for hiking and rock climbing um, formed within the uh, East German athletic association after the war Um, and all popular activities were kind of, put under state mass organizations um, as, as would have been the case in Eastern Europe as well. Um, so if you wanted to participate in a sport, you had to join the official sports organization. And in this case, if you wanted to hike or rock climb, you had to join um, sports organization. Uh, there was also a culture league that organized hiking to a certain degree outside the sports organization. But I look in particular at the sports organization, how they use athletic competition as a means to, remove from hiking that romantic uh, notion of kind of a spiritual escape into nature and to make that nature experience something that better inculcates certain values among citizens. It promotes hard work. It promotes uh, competition. It prepares citizens to be good workers, good soldiers, um, um, and and, uh, to fight uh, for a communist regime. This is not a great way to win loyalty um, because uh, um, often this meant they underfunded family hike act, um, activities or projects that would have supported family hiking that have supported kind of more unorganized, uncompetitive type uh, of uh, nature outings. Um, so, th- and I opened the book there. Really, that first chapter is the regime trying to stamp out what it saw as dangerous bourgeois romantic naturalism through this idea of competition.
0: Well, another way in which um, this new regime probably was not uh, winning a lot of people over is that the Soviet style um, emphasis uh, is on um, developing heavy industry as uh, an economic development. And so that was bound to create conflict um, with conservationists, with whether formally organized and identified as such, or even just people who wanted to have these um, natural areas um, next to their hometowns. So tell us um, in particular about the political debates over the proposed national park near Dresden and what that reveals about the relationship between the conservationists and the state in these early decades of the German Democratic Republic.
1: Yeah, so especially in those early decades, as you said, uh, the regime was focused on heavy industry um, and increasing just raw productivity of timber, of coal, uh, of iron, and other uh, industrial products. Um, And as throughout Eastern Europe was wary of uh, consumerism, not just for the reasons many Germans, as I mentioned earlier, were wary of uh, consumer desires, but um, for what we call Marxist reasons, that, that these were false desires and they were consumerism was a way to distract workers from what really mattered um, and promoted and consumers promoted inequality. So that's the emphasis of the state. And that means more pollution. That means more destruction of the forests. Um, and in, often in popular and occasionally in scholarly accounts of East Germany and the environment, that's the story, the story of heavy industry, um, the state's attempt to increase productivity at all costs, regardless of, How it affects human health or environmental health what i with the national park our proposal for a national park in uh saxon switzerland um, this little region outside of dresden uh, i try to show that yes um, the state is overly focused on increasing agricultural forest and industrial productivity um, but it understands two things. One, it needs political legitimacy, and it can. It, one way to get that is to offer better living standards. And that can be defined in many different ways. But, um, that would include uh, more leisure activities and sports, um, improving public health. Um, and they particularly wanted to promote aspects of living standards that did not mean buying TVs and cars. Um, so tourism was a nice... Uh, and sports were nice ways to say, hey, we're helping you, so therefore we're a good government. Um, they also, in the name of industrial productivity, wanted workers to be more productive, and the idea that uh, recreation uh, would rejuvenate workers for the workday uh, was important. Um, now, some landscape planners uh, in and arch- landscape architects already cared about the environment, um, and they... And they had been thinking about how recreation molds personalities even before 1945. Um, but here I argue that they saw um, a way to engage the regime and say, hey, you, you, you profess to care about living standards and popular well being, uh, public health in particular, um, that if you say capitalism leads to poor health and leads to uh, misery, inequality, homelessness, and you're offering something else. Well, <laughs> where that recreation is happening is out there in those forests. And if those uh, forests are not managed uh, in a sensible way, um, then uh, recreation is going to be undermined. And therefore these other things you claim to care about will be undermined. Um, And I think this gets these landscape architects some traction. Um, They are able to uh, present this not as a reactionary bourgeois outmoded um, nature protection project, but in fact, a very modern element of a well-managed, centrally-planned economy. That um, that planned economy should actually pay attention to these things too, that these things mean tourism, uh, infrastructure, landscapes, parks, things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. You argue that looking at East German camping culture within the context of East German consumer politics reveals what you call messy boundaries between state and society. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah.
1: um, A source that I mentioned in the book, a good entry point for that. Um, In 1990, I found a complaint in a small town near a uh, campground that had been very popular during the GDR. Um, and they describe it as an, a, a SED space, a social unity party space, basically something imposed by this horrible regime and ruined their local culture um, and landscape. Um, and I kind of... I. Kinda, I, I, I challenge that by saying, well, actually, uh, yes, the state is monitoring and making sure certain activities aren't happening in that space. They are dictating ultimately what gets built, who gets to the vacation there. Yes. Um, and I really hoped throughout the book to never lose sight of the fact that this is a coercive regime. Um, but at the same time, um, that campground, um, and other campgrounds like it were as much created by the vacationers themselves. Um, and those vacationers are often asking the state to intervene. They're not just escaping the state, they're asking the inter- state to intervene to provide better infrastructure, more camping spaces, um, to, or some other aspect of the, of their experience. And, um, or they are, uh, pushing the regime to better appease these desires they have for campgrounds and and vacation spaces. And the regime is concerned about responding to those popular uh, desires. Um, And so I try to follow in a very material way, the development of the campground and kind of show the ways in which the regime isn't just creating what they want, um, but ultimately end up creating something that is partly what they want, partly what uh, vacationers from Karl Marx City, from Berlin, from Dresden, what they want. Um, sometimes what gets left out is maybe the local small towns, they're, they're not being paid attention to, but that this is a. Um, and that's what I mean by messy, that this is. Uh, these spaces are hybrid spaces. They are a mix of popular and uh, top down state creations.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things I found really interesting in the book was your argument that the East German regime not only had to, um, redefine what it meant to be German because uh, thinking of, um, oneself as German and, but also it had to position itself against these local regional identities and that the, the local Heimat was as important as, you know, sort of the big Germany, Um, and so you talk a lot about that as well, the, the interplay between um, this landscape planning and the um, uh, relationship to uh, how people identified with their local communities and regional landscapes. So tell us more about the Greifenbach Reservoir and how that all of that um, tension uh, came to play out in that uh, particular space.
1: Yeah, Um there's a lot of good work on the persistence of local identity in in, in ways that may be resistant to the new regime. Um, and I think that's in many cases, there's there's a lot to that argument. Um, Greifenbach in this space, um, this is in Saxony. Um, it is in the vicinity of what is today, Chemnitz, um, in the War Mountains or the Erzgebirge, And, um, you know, so this has been a space that people from Saxony, from Chemnitz, from Dresden had been vacationing, particularly middle classes have been, have been hiking uh, for a while. So when um, the regime is creating bungalows, is creating campgrounds for workers from outside the region, there is a tension um, between the needs of this kind of a, a working class and emerging white collar class, uh, people who work in party offices or other planning offices in Berlin and, and other regional capitals. Tension between meeting their needs and then uh, meeting the needs of um, you know, a local family who wants to go out um, and maybe spend the weekend in their own backyard, so to speak. And so often there, lo- some locals will complain that they did not have uh, a camp spot uh, because it was being taken by someone from Berlin or from, from Dresden. Um, so that's one tension between the center and the local, the regional that emerges. I really tend to focus um, on this group that's kind of in between the government at the center and these local towns and villages. Um, and that is this this emerging civil service class, uh, white collar, what we might call white collar class, and how they, how these campgrounds are really created for them, um, and how they are seeking vacation spaces, which are scarce, uh, which are hard to get. Uh, and this leads to uh, conflicts that often have um, reveal social inequalities, who has access to these spaces, who does not have access to these spaces. Um, but it also, um, I think, remaps to a certain degree the mental geography uh, of, of East Germans, that you know, before there are these local heimats, these local homelands, could be Saxony, could be the Erzgebirge. Um, And then there's the greater national homeland of the German nation. I mean, there's not any loyalty to this strange creation called East Germany. It it doesn't map onto any historic um, space. Um, It includes a few different uh, provinces that that has some historical reason to be. But East Germany itself never, never stayed that particular size and shape before. But as this new civil service emerges, there's not—you know—it's hard to get a car in East Germany. But as more and more East Germans are going out to camp in the countryside, um, especially those who do have access to a car um, and are able to accrue a camp space and camping equipment, the, it, instead of just traveling to a Berliner traveling to the immediate Brandenburg countryside, they may be going to the Arzgebirge more often, and they're doing that. Um, not just on a uh, by train, but in their own cars, and that this uh, geography of automobility and of individual camping, um, people get Maybe some East Germans are imagining a a larger vacation space um, that does not overlay exactly with these old regional identities. Even though you know, those, those identities and those uh, those identities are still there. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I did get I did get the impression from your book that in the 1970s East Germans were more interested in arguing with each other over bungalows than in uh, opposing the socialist state. And um, so, can you delve into that a little bit more and how this experience, what the tensions then within this supposedly classless society, um, and yet how consumerism, particularly related to tourism was um, perhaps creating or revealing some of these these um, class differences. So how did one
1: get access to a bungalow, uh, a cottage, at a, at a campground, or even a campsite? Um, some of that had to do with political connections. Um, if you were a party official, uh, if you were in local party officialdom, Um, It was easier to gain access. Some of it had to do with where you worked. Um, You worked um, at a large factory. You're probably better guaranteed a spot um, than a tradesperson, a carpenter or mechanic of some sort. Um, And then if you had access to raw materials or cash either because you had relatives in west germany or because um maybe you had a job where there, maybe there's extra wood laying around you could help build a bungalow with um, this might help you um, acquire these spaces um and increasingly the people without bungalows began to associate these bungalows with uh people from Berli- the cities uh, berlin um from dresden and in particular with uh, party officials but it, it but also um, these bureaucrats who work for planning offices, economic planning offices, that may not be members of the party, but because of their uh, job, have access to these spaces. And so, um, lots of letters of complaints um, um, where talking about how people are not allowed to build a bungalow or a building them anyway, um, how po- public access to lake shores is being um, undermined by the proliferation of these, these bungalows, which kind of parcel up um, the landscape. In um, a real sense that some East Germans have access to better consumer goods, better vacations than others. Um, and c- people who complained would use the language of socialist equality um, to criticize this, this inequality. Um, and for environmental protection, this is really interesting because in the 70s and 80s, in West Germany and in the West in general, uh, you see an environmentalism emerging that's very critical of, uh, of consumer abundance, as you know, creating lots of garbage, creating lots of waste, uh, contributing uh, ozone damage to the ozone layer, climate, eventually climate change, things like that. Um, and then I look at these tourists complaining about poor access to green spaces, to vacation areas in the mountains, at the beaches, at, on the lakesides. They're both arguing um, for better distribution of consumer goods and for green space. Um, and and I, I argue that the, the two become linked and that their, their popular environmentalism, they wouldn't have called it that, but their, their engagement with environmental issues isn't anti-consumer, but in fact is uh, the two things go hand in hand. We, we are deprived both of consumer goods and of green space, and we would both the state to do a better job distributing those goods. Um, and that's a very different way of thinking about the landscape than some of the uh, highly, the more political ecology that's emerging in the West at the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you say that the new environmental laws that was passed in the early 1970s made it appear that the conservationists had won um, in the sense of... Uh, making that a priority within the state. So what happened and why did it only appear to be a victory uh, for land con- conservationists?
1: Yeah. So in that chapter, um, I tried to connect tourism to these new envi- this new environmental law in the early 1970s um, and basically say that what had, beginning with that national park proposal in the 1950s in near Dresden, this argument that tourism justifies landscape planning and landscape protection had been used by conservationists who were on the outs so didn't necessarily have great influence. Um, but by the 1970s, this argument that recreation, tourism, um, depends on good landscape planning has become, I guess you could say, more mainstream. It, um, and, and it shapes this uh, Landis Kultuur Gazette's this uh, landscape protection law, in 1970, 1971. And many of its, much of its justification, much of its language is talking about the protection of landscapes for the benefit of public health, for the benefit of vacationing um, that uh, by everyday East Germans. Um, so that in that sense, it looks like they've won. This language they've used, the arguments that they've been making seem to have triumphed. Um, the state is very early in Europe um, recognizing the need for a comprehensive landscape protection, um, which this law embodies. Um, now, one could argue the law was just a political window dressing because, you know, there were international conferences, environmental movement internationally. And it was a way to make the Eastern Germans look better than the West Germans. It um, was an element of that. Um, but, um, When I say that the the conservationists in some ways won, I think this law also emerged from a domestic East German conversation about uh, public health tourism in nature. But they ended up losing in the sense that um, the regime really ultimately, when they talked about tourism, cared most about making sure the public had as many (laughs) uh, tents and uh, campgrounds and sausages at the local at the campground as they could get um, and so it became the landscape protection law became as much about uh, modifying and opening up landscape reserves for more and more tourists as it did about protecting those tourists so the planning part was often focused on increasing the number of tourists and not about managing for the health of both tourists and nature um, so some of the uh, Characters in my in my book who are uh, often argued that tourism justified environment planning begin increasingly to back off and say tourism is a threat to that good landscape planning that um, it is uh, another sign of this, the lack of central planning in East Germany that things are just kind of going haywire. Hey, <laughs> <laughs>
0: And I was surprised in your book, and it's one of the key points you're trying to make, is the degree to which that vacationers, landscape planners, and economic authorities were able to find common ground at various points. But um, as we know, that really broke down um, by the 80s, and in part because East Germany's ecological and economic problems were becoming quite severe. So can you give us some examples of environmental degradation at the time and Um, how this um, began to galvanize uh, the East German public uh, around uh, the need for conservation.
1: One of the big things in the 1980s is what the Germans called forest death, um, sulfur dioxide pollution, um, and the impact it had on the forests of Germany, particularly in East Germany. Um, So many, uh, you know, East Germany It was obvious right in front of them. Not only were the waters polluted, um, but the, you know, the trees were dying, literally dying, right in front of them. And, um, and that phenomenon, there's a lot of causes for it, and they're very complicated and often not as simple as environmentalists portray them to be. Um, but one of the causes was the oil crosses in the 1970s. Um, East Germany's supply of oil, um, was largely cut off um, as oil prices rose. The Soviets stopped supplying much of that oil in part because they wanted to sell it to increase their revenue, um, which meant that for the plastics industry and for many other uh, industries, East Germany is increasingly ar- uh, dependent on coal. Um, and East Germany has access to some of the dirtiest uh, brown coal um, that exists, which is uh, particularly pro the sulfur dioxide. And this creates a real sense of you know, the limits to growth for many observers in East Germany, that you know, the only way the economy can grow is burning more brown coal, which means you know, very clear destruction, not just of trees, but of lungs and buildings and um, other things, through acid rain and, and other other problems. And that consensus I talk about, it's not a consensus that Marxism is good. It's not a consensus that um, They all love Hanukkah, Ubrecht, the leaders of East Germany. There's a consensus the idea that a state um, can promote what seemingly would seem like limitless growth, that the the economies can grow if they're properly managed, if they're uh, with good technology, with scientific management. Um, And that at the same time, if things are done right, um, you can keep green spaces. You can care for the landscape and both grow the economy and um, preserve... uh, green spaces for the public um, and preserve public health. Um, and increasingly uh, in the 1980s, uh, some people begin to doubt whether that's true. Uh, and uh, A, the you know, some first conservationists who had seen tourism as an ally, one reason they begin to doubt it is because the tourism numbers go up and you know, increasingly they see unsightly messes near campgrounds near beaches um, uh, in East Germany. Um, but also that this the pollution they see in front of them in the forests um, encourages that idea. I um, mean that's really where this uh, political movement, environmental movement in the 1980s, really challenges the notion of limitless growth and begins to, uh, as the Greens in West Germany were doing, to suggest that maybe there are limits, that's mm-hmm. natural biophysical limits to what we can.
0: Yeah, and I think many of us who um, you know think about the the end of East Germany really identify the environment, environmental movement as having a, a predominant role in the political unrest that was happening um, by the late eighties. So can you talk more about how, about that political unrest and, and the relationship between um, the the green movement or the greens in East Germany and kind of broadly what was happening um, between the, the breakdown of, of uh, the relationship between state and society.
1: So for various reasons, the church in East Germany became a refuge for political dissidents, um, And this involved a mix of anti-nuclear activists, peace activists, vegetarians, environmentalists, all kinds of groups. Um, uh, sometimes the same person was all of these um, within these uh, church-based organizations. Um, and they increasingly began to make arguments about uh, Need for environmental care, but this was associated with an idea of individual responsibility, of changing the way government functions, moving toward a more um, uh, democratic regime. So the environmental movement was kind of very much at the heart of this uh, dissident movement in the nineteen eighties. That really kind of blows up after nineteen eighty six with with Gorbachev and also after Chernobyl, um, not coincidentally, and. what I w- was intriguing to me is that uh, for many of these dissidents, organized within the church, they made very similar arguments to environmentalists in the West, uh, which was a very non-conformist, anti-mainstream, uh, critical of consumerism argument in a country known for consumer scarcity um, and known um, for its envy of West German consumer products and vacations in Majorca and. Uh, so this seemed to me, you know, there must be a tension here. And, you know, indeed, you know, in the former East, the Green Party is not fared particularly well, particularly in the, the countryside or in the smaller cities. And so, you know, one way I explore this, and I, I have to say I struggle with was I doing justice to the 1980s environmentalist movement. My book was not necessarily about them, but that, that's what everyone knows about when it comes to East Germany and the environment. Um, and my, you know, since I, I started with tourism... Um, And that's consumerism. I I use that to explore among some of these dissidents, um, what is their relationship with tourists? How are they engaging with them? In many ways, they're critical of what I call the popular discourse, which is seeking vacation spots and more TVs and cars and things like that. Um, And then so there's a tension between the dissidents organized within the church and everyday East Germans, about what exactly they want. Um, All of them are upset about the destruction of the environment, about um, inequalities. But I think that the dissidents in the church organizations and the environmental organizations have a a very, much stronger and clearer position that consumerism actually is propping up the socialist statement. Socialists are basically winning the loyalty by... What was called consumer socialism Honukker's policies of making sure people had a basic amount of meat basic, basic goods maybe not luxuries but you know basic goods and that this was uh, propping up a dictatorial regime and, and they consistently are making that argument at the same time they also they want vacation spaces as well so that you know they, their, their engagement with tourism is, is complicated also
0: mm-hmm You've mentioned West Germany a couple times, and I, I think our conversation wouldn't be complete if you didn't tell us a little bit about the relationship between um, conservation um, and the state in East Germany, and how that compared to what was happening in East German, uh, sorry, in West Germany, over time, and where it where it converged, and where they uh, came together, and and to what extent were West German environmentalists and with uh, conservationists in East Germany?
1: I'd say up to the 1970s, um, there are a lot of similarities. Um, environmentalism in West Germany, there was, was a lot of landscape architects and regional planners involved um, trying to control what um, this exponential growth um, of, of West German cities. Um, and a lot of discussion about the need for recreation and outdoor space um, as wrapped up in that conversation um of course that's it, it doesn't have the same kind of authoritarian molding of personalities that you see in east germany um what begins to emerge as distinct in west germany um, in, w- in which west germany shares a lot with the u.s france um, and other western european countries is uh the '68 generation and its critique of um It's kind of third way critique of capitalism and uh, critique of consumerism informs a environmentalism Green Party that is very much promoting um, the limits to growth and promoting alternative lifestyles. Now, some of those West German activists uh, engaged a lot with the East German environmental movement that had been organized within the church. They um, shared literature, they visited, they sometimes would make sure that pamphlets or videos made in East Germany are aired and, or published in West Germany. And so there is this, this engagement. Um, and given that many of the Greens in the West uh, have their own critique of capitalism, they're also you know, interested in a conversation um, with uh, Marxist-informed environmental critiques in the East. And, you know, so there's a common conversation there that's going on. But, I wouldn't say the West German Greens are the reason that the East German environmental movement emerged in the 1980s, but they definitely interacted.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Scott, I thank you for talking uh, to me. And uh, then also then with all of our listeners through the new books in East European studies podcast about your book, the people's landscape. And as I said, I really enjoyed reading it. I felt like I learned a lot and hopefully our listeners will pick up a copy and read it as well. Uh, And I'd like to close with our uh, traditional question, which is, "What are you working on now?"
1: Yeah, something very different. (laughs) Well, I love East Germany. I I love reading sources different, you know, against the grain to get at popular attitudes, uh, whether that's complaint letters or uh, newspaper reports or surveys or vacations. Um, I was ready to do something non-East German, (laughs) and so I am actually working on an environmental history um, that explores. German critiques of American soil plunder um, from the 19th into the early 19th century, into the early Cold War period. Um, so, America as kind of a bad example of how to manage and care for soil fertility and prevent erosion, um, and, how, and Germans kind of hold the U.S. up as this the uh, negative to compare themselves to. And In, in turn, this helps the creation of a German national identity where care of the soil is so important um, as you, you, know, you see that some people might be familiar with the Nazi blood and soil rhetoric and some of its promotion of peasants and Germans as better carers of the land and the Slavs to the east supposedly right and I'm looking to how the comparisons that are looking westward um, how Germans how this notion of a particular German stewardship of the environment particularly of soil um, emerges in conversation with what's happening in the U.S.
0: <laughs> oh, great. Well, that does sound like an interesting project, and I suspect that when the book comes out, there might be someone from New Books and Environmental Studies who will be interested in um, talking to you about that book. And so uh, keep us in mind when you are publishing that book. But for now, uh, I appreciate that you took the time to uh, talk with me today, and I also want to thank our listeners for listening to our podcast series and we hope that you'll continue to join us for more conversations about new books and East European studies.